0: This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to the author of the paper that is titled Dietary Iron, Unlikely to Cause Insulin Resistance in Horses. And this is by Nancy L. McLean, Narida McGilchrist, and Brian D. Nielsen. So very exciting, Nancy, that your first paper is published. And it was a really interesting read so I have questions for you, but I thought I might just do the simple summary first to give everyone a little bit of a background. Um, so this paper is newly published as of September 2022, and it is available on the journal Animals. And in a simple summary, um, the equine, in the equine diet, iron comes from both roughage and concentrate but it's often supplemented as well with the expectation that it's going to improve the horse's performance and health. So this study wanted to determine iron consumption in the po- in the population of horses um, via a survey of US thoroughbred trainers. So there was 120 trainers that were surveyed and that represented 1,978 thoroughbreds from various regions in the United States, which is, a fabulous large number of um, responses to have data for this research. So racehorses were fed an average of 3,900 megs of iron per day, and that was coming from their hay and grain alone. And that exceeded recommendations that were put forth by the 2007 horse NRC, but then supplements increase that daily average by an additional 500 megs a day. And essentially, despite some equine nutritionists suggesting that this excess iron in the diet would be a contributing factor in horses developing insulin resistance, there was not one case of insulin resistance in any of the trainers thoroughbred horses. So in the 1,978 thoroughbred horses, not one was showing signs or symptoms of insulin resistance. Given the excessive iron provided to the horses in this study, it can be um, extrapolated that it's unlikely dietary iron is an independent causative factor of insulin resistance. So again, congratulations, Nancy. And um, the first question I guess I had was, how did you come to this topic for your research?
1: Well, thanks, Kate. Um, I had Dr. Brian Nielsen from Michigan State as my supervisor. So Dr. Nielsen actually was the author of the initial study that used horses as a replacement for black rhinos. And the National um, Research Council, they actually uh, were okay that A rhino's gastrointestinal tract and a horse's were quite similar. So he could use the horses as a replacement for the black rhinos. And it's been known in zoos that rhinos have insulin dysregulation. Um, They have high iron levels as well. And it's probably due that they're more sedentary. In zoo life than they would be in the wild. So um, he wanted just to test out the theory and he used quarter horses. So he did the research and he correlated that the uh, horses that had insulin resistant, which there was only one quarter horse that actually was diagnosed with IR. Um, the others did have higher insulin They also had higher um, serum ferritin levels. So he he thought it was due to inflammation, but some other researchers kind of took his results and uh, blamed iron for the occurrence of insulin resistance. So he's interested in furthering this research. Let's see what iron actually does. And does it create insulin resistance? So he proposed the uh, subject to me, and, and I said sure because I was from thoroughbred racing. I thought I want to, you know, I can do this research. So it worked out great because a lot of the trainers that were in the sur- that did the survey, I knew, and then word of mouth. Um, Also, they could get online. And then I had Ed Bowen, who at the time was president of the Jockey Club. He sent my survey out to trainers that he thought would take it and kind of know what they're feeding, what the weights were, and be more specific. But we knew we couldn't make the survey too involved or people wouldn't take it.
0: And can you tell us, Nancy, what the importance is of iron just in the general horse's diet? But then why is it traditionally supplemented in racehorses?
1: Well, in generally in the horses' diet, iron is a trace mineral. And usually um, it's ideal if they get it in small amounts, but iron is everywhere. It's in plants, it's in animals, it's in soil. And so um, its uptake is really tightly regulated in the digestive tract of horses. Um, It's involved in hormone control, um, oxygen transport in blood and muscle. Um, It's also uh, involved with hemoglobin and myoglobin. So it's important that a horse have enough iron. It's rare though that they're anemic. And so it's something that really we don't need to normally be um, consumed with about a horse not having enough iron. But if they get gastric ulcers or maybe pulmonary bleeding, um, it is the way that they can lower their iron amounts is um, through that type of bleeding, maybe an injury, whatever. And in racing, it's so important that they have enough hemoglobin, which produces the oxygen um, for them to be able to compete. So trainers on the track give iron um, to build up that oxygen carrying capacity. And then also to kind of safeguard in case their horses are bleeding and it's not noticeable so the bleeding can come from ulcers or pulmonary bleeding in the lungs a lot of times you don't see that out their nostrils or evidence of the coughing until it gets somewhat pronounced
0: and from your experience on the racetrack Nancy like how how do trainers typically determine how much of that iron supplement to give
1: well, that's usually directions. Uh, it can either be given liquid with a pump. And I've seen trainers um, just pump a couple squirts into each feed bucket. I It's called red cell and there's other varieties as well. And then also sometimes it can come in a pellet so or a powder and um, hopefully a scoop comes with it and they measure. But same way I've seen, you know, some grooms just pick up a handful and throw it in a bucket. So my survey covered that. You know, how do you give your iron uh, if you supplement or use a vitamin? Do you measure or do you just average what you're doing, like a handful, a cupful, a couple squirts, or whatever? So I could go ahead and figure okay, this is what they're doing. And then I, I figured out the iron amount and what they told me how they dispensed it.
0: And from the title, it says dietary iron is unlikely to cause insulin resistance in horses. What kinds of limitations did you come up against with this? Or how could you, I suppose, go forward and do more research to confirm that it doesn't?
1: well our limitations were the fact that we knew trainers are busy they hate taking surveys they like revealing their secrets um you know so i some of them i approached personally and talked to them about what we were trying to do and tried to engage them into you know, this will be completely anonymous. We won't give out what you're feeding, what you're doing and all that. And um, they ideally, if I could have done individual diets and assessed what each of those 1,978 horses were consuming, um, that would be great. And also this was only as fed. So what dribbled out of their mouth, what maybe they weren't absorbing, that was not tallied. And you would have to do that with feces and urine collection. So um, we had to do this in a way that trainers um, would comply with. You know, when horses are competing and you're talking about purse money, they don't want people in hanging diapers from the horses or doing too much. This was easy for them because they told me what they fed. And then I could take that information and decipher how much iron on average each trainer was feeding.
0: That's a great point that when it's as feds. You know, we can't really stipulate for what's actually taken in. And my mayor is really bad for quizzing. And, mm-hmm. like, the dentist has been out there loads, and he was like, it's just behavioral, as far as we can see. She likes to drop it and pick it up again. <laughs> but, yeah, you'd, sometimes it just depends. Like, she's pretty good at clearing a bucket, so she will pick it up again. But it just depends, like, if she lifts her head up over you know, a fence or up over the wall when she's eating, like some of that gets lost. Um, And I suppose when you are thinking about getting down to the nitty gritty of it, there would be a lot to get that kind of accuracy. And these are, you know, working horses, essentially, they have a job to do. They can't be in like research stalls and be performing. So I think that's a really great point. You know, that's such a limitation. Um, But then I suppose, like, they're just not as likely to get it, though, either, because of the work they do.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, we did not ask for a breakdown of sex and age. Now, we did have horses that were actively racing. We had horses that are on layoff, so maybe they came up a little sore, but they're still at the track and they're still being monitored for their lameness or uh, maybe given a little time off, but it's not enough time to take them to a farm and bring them down. And then we also had retired horses in the study that the trainers were using as pony horses or Mm -hmm. as companion horses. So um, we had a broad age range. However, the majority were actively racing and training thoroughbreds, probably from the age of two, all the
0: way up to the age of five or six. And knowing what you know now from this study, how can people use this information and move forward with it? Well, I think
1: first thing, don't worry so much about iron because feed companies, it's very difficult to produce concentrates and mineral balancers that don't have iron amounts that supersede the minimum amount that the... um, Nutrient Research Council says we need so for horses. So um, I would say balance the diet. Really hone in on your digestible energy because that is your calories. And if you're over giving, if you're overfeeding to the point that your horse is gaining weight, that's more of um, a causative factor and insulin resistance and metabolic issues than worrying about the iron amount. So I have an example with my 16 year old thoroughbred. He needs a little bit higher digestible energy because he had the arytenoid tie back surgery. So he tends to maybe lose a little bit of food by coughing or if he lifts his head up, you know, he may lose a little bit from his nose even. So he has to be fed on the ground with his head below his withers. Um, So his digestible energy is at 125% and it keeps him at a good body weight, but probably a five on the BCS scale, one through nine. However, his iron amount is a little more than what it should be. It's actually at 3000 milligrams. And that is due to his mineral balancer. 90% of his digestible energy is from pasture and hay. So if I were to give him a concentrate, it would put him way over. So um, I would say concentrate on physical fitness, exercise, body condition, more than you worry about the iron that's in the diet.
0: And I thought that was a great point in the paper about, you know, how much it can vary. Cause you're saying, you know, he's getting 90% of his digestible energy just from pasture and hay alone. And yeah. you mentioned in the paper that, um, for instance, racing yards aren't in a position to store a lot of hay so they're you know cycling different batches of hay and they're getting it from different places and the iron contents varying every time so it's great that it's not something to really be concerned about in these cases right I mean
1: you know your vet and you need to discuss if you do a ration calculation you'll be surprised how much pasture has iron in it but i will tell you plant-based iron is not as readily absorbable or bioavailable i should say as meat-based or animal-based iron so you have to remember just because your pasture's coming up high iron doesn't mean your horse is actually absorbing all that because it's a plant-based or non-heme iron. Heme iron is your animal byproducts on your feed bag. So that is more absorbable. And most supplements are animal byproduct iron. So that just tends to be more bioavailable. And that's why when we were kids and our moms tried to get us to eat liver, they used to say oh, it's good for your blood, you know. Well it's true because it's animal based heme iron that's in that liver, but, oh, none of us really wanted to eat liver. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> so
1: that's a good way to remember heme is much more bioavailable to humans and horses than non-heme iron, but even our haze, our hay, if you go to Equianalytical, we could not analyze every type of hay trainers feed because, as Kate said, there's not a lot of storage on the track. So you're getting hay from all these sources. So we went and took the mean amount of equianalyticals um, lab results on their hay analysis, and we used that amount, huge amounts in some cases. However, it doesn't mean the horse is absorbing that iron. They're eating it and they're taking it in, but it does not mean that they're uh, using it. In fact, there was one study that said 60% of the feces had iron in it that it was not absorbed by the horse. So I think your best bet is talk to your vet. Um, discuss, you know, what you're feeding, look at your horse's body condition. And most of the time, you really don't need to worry about the iron amount. It's more important to look at protein, digestible energy, your lysine and your amino acids that are building blocks for your horse's health.
0: Brilliant. And I love the final like sentence in the research paper that just sums up, you know, going forward what to do. When it comes to insulin resistance horses, it says until research can determine this, greater emphasis needs to be placed on maintaining a healthy body weight for horses and ensuring adequate exercise to maintain insulin sensitivity. And the healthy body weight, we've chatted about this before, you know, we're way more lenient with our own pets Um, And that was another great point in the paper, actually, as well, Nancy, that the competition horses, you know, judges tend to favor ones that are a little bit over-conditioned, even to the point where on a nine-point scale, they're up over six, aren't they? And a lot of times when they win. 6.6
1: on a body condition score. And Kate, you brought up that paper during one of the episodes a while back, and when I was editing this Um, We opted to put that in there because that's an important fact that um, there's a study that says even owners aren't good at assessing their own horse's Mm -hmm. body condition score. We tend to think our horses are thinner than they really are, but we're so quick to point out thin horses. Well, we've lost the eye for what's healthy thin and what's healthy there is no healthy fat really so we kind of always gravitate toward that full bodied horse when in reality they're overweight
0: and the amount of times you know in practice and I have heard horse owners say it too but even when it comes to dogs and cats and the amount of times just owners are utterly shocked when you discuss diet and talk about you know maybe modifying the diet because they're a little bit on the heavier side and they're looking at their dog or their cat or their horse and they're thinking, no, like they could do with putting on some weight, surely. And obesity is just a massive issue, a man-made problem, or I should say human-made, sorry. Um, but it's something that we're in control of with our animals. And I think a massive welfare issue. And, um, and it's, definitely harder for some owners than others because obviously cat owners they get a telling from the cat a lot more than you will from a dog and for (laughs) anyone that owns a pony like good luck because ponies are just so good at putting on weight.
1: I hear you and you know that's what attracted me um, to this research as well because I actually started the um, approval process in 2018. And I think we were able to um, do our human ethic uh, research approval like around November or December of that year. And I had already had the pony almost a year and realized I, this is a physical fitness made scenario because this pony looks at grass and puts on weight. And so (laughs) I was attracted to the research that kept coming up that just 15 minutes of weight bearing exercise five times a week in a pony will bring their insulin levels down. So that's fascinating, that little bit of time commitment could save your horse from laminitis and from metabolic dysregulation. So it kind of put a whole new skew that I became more obsessed with apps and, you know, gauging our time that we did walk, trot, and canter. So I could kind of figure out what her output was to be able to stay within a certain body condition score and you know we're still fighting it I mean during spring and summer and into the fall she's a little plump but I use the winter to drop that weight off that all the exercise I still can't get her to drop weight she eats so doggone fast
0: She makes up that time.
1: She makes up for it. And um, you know, it's her social time too to be out with the thoroughbreds. And so, you know, genetics and metabolism and temperament in the thoroughbreds help them in this department. We know that. But there were also studies where young thoroughbreds were given high grain diets and they weren't in training or anything. And every single one of them became insulin resistant. They lost that insulin sensitivity. So I listed that one in the paper too, because people might say, well, thoroughbreds don't get insulin resistant. Well, yes, they do. It's just given the correct scenario. And most of the time, it's too many calories in and not enough out. Mm-hmm. You know? I think
0: it's just a great, a great all round paper and it is open access. And I highly recommend all of our listeners and um, to have a read of that because it has been, you know, a lot of blood, sweat and tears of Nancy's <laughs> that have gone into getting this research published and getting it out there. And it really is no easy feat. So a massive congratulations again, Nancy, Um, officially an author. Very exciting.
1: Thanks. I can't take all the credit, though. Professor Nielsen took it from 9,000. I think our our limit was 9,000 words. I might be wrong. Maybe it was 10.
0: I think it was 10.
1: 10. Okay. so we had to take that down from 10,000 down to I believe we're at 4,600. So he helped immensely in picking out because I went into bioavailability in the thesis, I went into types of iron, I went into so much more um, to fill out that the entire picture of iron and its processes even how exercise affected iron amounts and hemoglobin production so i have to credit him he went through it with a fine tooth comb and really did a great job of telling me what areas we were going to put in this
0: yeah he makes
1: it uh, uh uh-huh I said he made it flow.
0: So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was a huge amount of work. And it is, you know, when you've written 10,000 words worth of something, you're like, how am I going to cut that in half? All of this is important. Um, um, but it it reads brilliantly and there's so many resources within it. And I just think it's so well written. And um, so everyone who is a fan of the show and has enjoyed listening to Nancy over the last two, are we almost over two years?
1: We started during COVID. So 2020, uh, yeah, we're in our third season.
0: Amazing. I'm losing track of time because it's been fun.
1: (laughs) Well, and you know what? It helped me because we were, I was remembering those studies we talked about. And I thought, darn, I can put that in this new edition of this paper because I started this research actually in 2018. So I had to catch up to all the new research to be able to, um, you know, get it out this year. So it worked out re- really well that I was familiar with some of the newer research because of this podcast.
0: Yeah. We've, we're serving a purpose for ourselves as well. Yes, yeah,
1: that's nice. right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I did um, want to say uh, thank you to the email. We got an email about a lady uh, wanting to uh, take the classes we took at the University of Edinburgh. And she wanted to know how it was doing um, online or hybrid. Um, sessions and I I do remember Kate you were living in Edinburgh Mm -hmm. and so I made the trip to Edinburgh but I had everything online now did you take hybrid classes Kate where you were in no
0: actually I was I was 10 minutes from the university but I did it solely online Um, because when I initially signed up to the master's I liked the flexibility of not having to stay in one country. And I remember listening to a talk from a previous student who moved like three times throughout the master's. And I think once even to Australia in that time period. Um, and to me, that that kind of suited, I guess, my motivation because I wanted the freedom to be able to move again. I didn't. I stayed there for the whole three years. Um, I did it completely online as well, and I would say it's just so impeccably run. The support you have, like you send an email and you get a response, you know, pretty snappy and you get help. And they're just, they're really a great team. And Bryony um, Lancaster that's there is absolutely fabulous. So I, I couldn't recommend, you know, a better no, I've never done any other one, but I couldn't recommend a better online master's.
1: I, I really enjoyed it because if I needed help in a certain subject area, they were always willing to even do a video, you know, uh, via Zoom or Microsoft Teams um, to be able to help with me understanding a concept and I think that was during our statistics part of it that I did use that um, to get more tutoring in that area and that was our studio to learn how to program Mm -hmm. statistics so but it was great and then I chose my supervisor to be at Michigan State in the United States and that helped out because we were on the same time zone. I will reply Um, to the um, inquiry about the school but I thought I'd mention it in today's episode in case other people are thinking about it I tell you what I wish I could take it all over again because I would probably savor everything
0: instead
1: of always looking to move on to the next class. Mm-hmm. I would slow down and savor the information, savor the assessments. I don't think I savored it as well, Kate, as I should have.
0: <laughs> uh, I think that's true for life, though. But I think you made a great point, um, because to me, you know, thought masters, there might still be the opportunities to collaborate with supervisors that aren't part of the school. Um, but the beauty of the online master's was, you know, the ability to collaborate. And, you know, one of my supervisors was based in the Netherlands and um, hopefully once my paper's published, we can chat a bit more about it, but she brought a level of expertise that was just absolutely incredible. So it opened doors and opened connections in a way that I wouldn't have realized was possible before.
1: I know it was phenomenal. The whole, global aspect of it is amazing I'm um, Bryony was wonderful in fact I acknowledged her in my paper for all her support and help and I do think the school makes the program the people that run the program make the program what it is and um, they did a fabulous job so
0: yeah you feel um, that at Edinburgh, they're proud of Um, their work and they're, you know, proud of what the course actually represents and the opportunities that come out of it. And you really feel that.
1: Yeah. yep. So, well, that's about all I had for this week. And Kate, thank you for um, the questions and uh, kind of highlighting this paper. And when yours is published, we'll do the same for you as well. And then uh, we still have our own research paper that it, or it's in the works. So uh, when that gets published, we'll definitely be talking more about that.
0: And as always, if you have any recommendations for topics or areas or research for us that you want to have discussed, you can contact us on our social media or you can contact us through Anchor as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kate. Thanks, Nancy. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye.